Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to jump back into this study on the end. And uh, the last message we talked about uh, in this last week was about being vigilant and alert, uh, spiritually alert, and we're going to continue to go uh, day after day, week after week, and we move closer and closer, of course, to the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the age. And it's vital that the people of God are like those that we saw in the stories that Jesus told out of Matthew chapter 25. Again, if you were here, he gave these illustrations about what it was going to be like for his return. Uh, again, five wise virgins had their lamps and their oils ready, and their oil ready. And then there were five foolish virgins who did not have uh, oil. And so the challenge was to be like the five wise ones. Uh, again, their faith was evident, and they lived alert and prepared. Talked about the three servants. Jesus uh, gave the illustration afterwards about those who were given talents or a measure of money. Two lived in faith with anticipation and living in responsibility for what they had been entrusted with, and one who did not. Instead, the one who did not held his portion as a golden ticket and did nothing by means of responsibility with what he had been entrusted with. And again, we, we see the story in the illustration or the, the lesson in the illustration. It was this, that there was no evidence of true faith. You see, in the first two, there was true and faithful, uh, true, true faith and faithfulness in their life. And they were rewarded. They were welcomed into heaven. And this, the, the one servant who was not was unfaithful and was unfruitful. And he was cast into torment. And I, I think it is so vital for us to get this. This is such a vital uh, lesson that Jesus was teaching. There's a very clear distinction. And it's made throughout all of church history between the people of God and those who think they are the people of God. Again, I, I hope that no one here misses that because it, it is a, a very sobering reality that there are many, Jesus said, who will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, they call him Lord. We, we did it all. We, we, we performed all this stuff, and we even did it in your name. And the sad reality, on that day, what Jesus says is, he will, I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Again, it's the same thing that he said in, in Matthew chapter 25, when it was too late for the virgins to, to make it back, and he said, I, I, I don't know you. I think there's sadly a lot of people who show up at church and claim the name of Christ. A lot of people who, who, who walk around life believing they've got a golden ticket. But they don't have the possession of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to remember that it's not based on our goodness. And it's definitely not based on our good works. It's based on faith. And faith that produces fruit. So I put this in the notes because it's such a vital element to what we're studying about the end times, and some, some people may not get that, but it is, because I, I don't want any person who shows up at our church, especially a member or somebody who, who shows up regularly, to have some false impression that they're going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ when, when one day they may be cast from his presence for all of eternity. Because the Bible, again, is very clear that if you have true faith, you will bring forth good fruit. If you have true faith, you will bring forth good fruit. That's not uh, the majority of Christians. No, that is all 
the, the saints of God. That it, again, it, it's different measures of grace. It's different amounts. Some ten, some a hundredfold. It, it doesn't matter. The, the reality is this. If you have true faith, it will show that you have true faith. But if you say that you have faith, and your fruit or what your life looks like, what comes out of your life, it's hard to distinguish between those who don't have faith in Christ, then there is a major concern. A major concern. Again, you, you say, well, I, I just don't know that, um, I don't know that I agree with that. Okay, good. Let's look at what Scripture says. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says, here we go, someone says he has faith, but he has no works. There's no evidence that are there's nothing produced from his faith so the question is posed can just faith alone can can someone say they have faith and can that be the the saving factor in their life can they just simply say they have faith i believe jesus died on the cross i believe he rose from the grave does that save a person look what he says in verse 15 if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food if one of you says to them go in peace and be warm be filled like you'll be okay <laughs> And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Again, if, if you say that you care for somebody and you have the ability to do something, what use is it saying that you care for somebody if you don't actually do it? The illustration there is if you have faith, it will be seen. You will look like a follower of Christ. You will sound like a follower of Christ. Your life will be distinguished. It will be separate from what those who do not have Christ, what their life looks like. And so he says, even so, faith, if it has no works, no evidence of true faith, it's dead being by itself. You can say all day long that you're going to heaven. You can say all day long that you believe Jesus died and rose again. You can, you can say all day long for the rest of your life. But if you truly don't, if you don't have true faith that produces evidence, works, fruit, that you have true faith, that faith is dead, Scripture says. He says, but, if, but someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without the works. It's impossible. There's no such thing. Faith without works doesn't exist. And saving faith doesn't. He says, and I'll show you my faith by my works. That's, that's how it works. You will see the fruit if someone truly has faith. You say, well, I just don't, again, maybe you're still on that, 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 that mindset. And maybe you're watching online. You say, I still don't know if I'm, I'm going along with that because I, I've always been taught that if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, he's God, he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again the third day, if you believe that, that you'll go to heaven. The key is what kind of belief that is, what kind of faith that is. Because, see, James here distinguishes the kind of faith that we've been talking about that doesn't produce works, that doesn't produce fruit, the, the kind of faith that looks like the, the one servant, the, the servant who received one talent, the kind of faith that the five virgins who had their lamps but no oil, that kind of faith, this is what it looks like. You believe that there is, that God is one, verse 19. You do well, but the demons also believe, and they shudder. See, the demons, no doubt, they have no doubt in their mind that Jesus is God. They know he, he created them. He's the creator. They have no, no doubt 
that he died on the cross. I'm sure they were celebrating that day. The demons have no doubt at all that he rose from the grave triumphant over death and hell in the grave. No doubt about it. And it causes them to tremble because they, it, it, it solidifies, it, it reemphasizes, it, 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 it verifies what they already knew. But no demon is going to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ in his eternal kingdom. They're going to be tormented with Satan and the lake of fire that was prepared for them. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? You can say all day long you believe that Jesus died and, and rose again. You can say all day long that you're a Christian going to heaven. But if your life does not exemplify that you have true faith in Jesus, then you have a useless faith, the Bible says. It's worthless. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son in an altar. He was talking about works that were produced by faith. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying that works alone. He says, so you see that faith was working with his works. In other words, faith produced his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. In other words, it was evident that he had true faith by what he was doing. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned, it was accounted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In other words, the, the, the works that accompany true faith truly show that someone has been declared righteous in God's sight. It's the evidence. But they say the proof is in the pudding. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the, the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Again, I don't want anybody that ever comes to this church to stand before the Lord one day and say, I just didn't know. I thought all I had to do was say a prayer. I thought all I had to do was show up at church and, and try to be a good person. I mean, I looked around at all the other people who claimed to be Christians and I felt like I was a pretty, pretty good person compared to them. Wrong. Bad standard. Jesus Christ is the standard. And if we have faith in him, we follow him. And if we're following him, the spirit that lives within us sanctifies us and, and it produces that fruit, that, that evidence, that work that shows that we have true faith in Jesus Christ. Again, this is what we see in the two stories from Matthew chapter 25. Our lives, period, period, should be distinct from those who haven't trusted Christ. And I want to tell you, Christian, today, stop looking at what other Christians are doing and trying to justify how worldly you can be and get by with it. Stop. Live by faith in the Son of God. Our lives should look like we're following Him, not following some other Christian or not following some lower standard of what following Christ looks like. Follow Christ. It's a sad day in, 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 the, in, the, American, in, in the American church today. Where people are, are, are claiming the name of Christ, but yet seeing how close they can get to worldliness. And some of them aren't seeing how close they can get. Some of them have fully jumped over and claim, oh, I'm a Christian because God's grace is good. And I would say that the, the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would say, you're, you're abusing the grace of God. 
Again, this I believe in light of the imminent return of Christ, which imminent return means it's, it's, it could happen any time, it's about to happen. I believe our, our, our lives being distinct should be amplified. The closer we get, the more distinct our lives should look. Every day, we should become more and more like Jesus Christ. We're moving forward in our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Again, the previous verse in verse 8 said, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet of the hope of salvation. Again, we see the familiar triad there, faith, hope, and love. And this is how we should live our lives in light of the end. Surrender to Christ, evidence of faith, hope, and love, confident of his return, confident of our eternal home, loving him more, loving others more, and loving his soon return. But Paul answers why our lives should be lived like we've seen in our text this morning. Why? Why should we be living sober? Why should we be living faithful? But why, why is it so important in light of the end of, of time, in light of Jesus' imminent return, why should our lives look like that? It's a good question. What, what's the point of it? Why? Why should we be so distinct in this end time? Verse 9. Because God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, whether we live or whether we die, we will live together with him. Praise God. And listen to what he says in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. This is another time that Paul had told these, uh, these Thessalonians, to continue doing what they were doing, but do it more, right? We've already talked about their love, their faith, and now the encouragement that they have for one another, they're supposed to continue to do it, the building up. Again, I, I love this, this truth that's found in verse 9. God has not appointed us, that's believers, true, true Christians, God has not appointed us for wrath, but he has appointed for us salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the saints of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is not destined, is not appointed, is not reserved. Wrath is not reserved for us. That's not our destiny. Again, that gives so much freedom to us. When we, when we remember that as the children of God, we don't have to worry about God's wrath anymore. No longer for our own individual selves. No longer do I have to worry about facing one little inkling of God's wrath against my sin. Now, there's no, let me make a distinction here. There's no doubt that God chastises us, and sometimes the chastisement hurts. Sometimes when God, you know, the old, old school saying, when God switches our legs, you know, it doesn't feel good sometimes. When God gets our attention, hey, you're off, you're not right. Hey, all of these circumstances are crowding in on your life. God's trying to get your attention. You say, what is happening in my life? Maybe God's correcting you to bring you back into where you're supposed to be. But God's correction, God's judgment, is not God's wrath. They are very distinct. We've seen God's wrath poured out on earth before, as in the days of Noah. It was poured out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, these are the same illustrations that Jesus has used as it would be at, at the end of time. So we don't have to worry about wrath. Wrath is not our destiny salvation is deliverance is our destiny i love this deliverance from wrath to come period that's god's appointment for you as a believer 
salvation. So what is my destiny? Salvation. Not wrath. Point number one, we escape God's wrath by faith in Jesus who took God's wrath in our place. See, the whole reason for Paul's exhortation, again, was to remind them that they have not been appointed to wrath. The whole reason why he was saying that you don't need to worry about uh, the, the day of the Lord is because you don't have to worry about experiencing the wrath of God. That's not your appointment. That's not your destiny. Your destiny, your appointment is deliverance or salvation. And the reason why we can rest in that and, and live in freedom of that, I don't, I, can, I don't have to worry or fret one day of my life that God's going to strike me down because of my sin. Now, now, God may correct me. God may even take me out because I, I become disobedient and callous and hard as his child. And he said, you know what? You're no longer useful for me. I'll, I'll either put you on a shelf or I'm just going to take you home. Was both sad realities. So yeah, at least be home. No, not if he wasn't. He wants to use you to the fullest in his will. So, I, so we escape God's wrath by faith, and our destiny is salvation. But aren't we already saved? Again, to receive salvation doesn't mean that the Thessalonians, or even for us today, didn't already possess salvation in the present. If you're if you're a Christian, you are saved. You have salvation. But salvation here is viewed from the standpoint of the future. And of course, the perspective of human responsibility. God hasn't appointed us to wrath, but to experience final and ultimate salvation. And this will not happen through our efforts, but as he said in Scripture, but it happens through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this point number one is so phenomenal. Paul had already laid out in chapter 4, when he described our, our meeting with Christ in the air, this ultimate deliverance, this ultimate salvation. And again, this point here is the miraculous beauty of the divine grace of God. It's, it's so miraculous, this point right here. If we are sinners and we deserve the punishment for our sin, which we are and we do, and if we're prone to mess up, even as Christians, and miss the mark, which we are and we do, then how can we be insured? How can we walk around in that freedom? How can we go every day with joy, knowing that we will never experience at least, well, maybe just a little bit? No, not even a little bit of God's wrath for our sin and for our spiritual ineptitude and our spiritual insufficiency. How can you be guaranteed? How can you walk around knowing this? Because, brother, I'll miss the mark all the time. Amen. <laughs> so you're not going to experience even just a little sliver of God's wrath? Even if you're just one of those just children of God that messes up all the time. You're striving, you're trying, but you're just, you just mess up all the time. That's absolutely right. So how? It's just phenomenal. That I won't have to experience, I mean, I, I would, I would, I would, here's maybe our rational minds, right? I, it would make a little more sense that if, because I'm such an insufficient and, 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 and inept child of God so often, that God would just let me experience a little bit of the wrath that I deserve for all of my sin. But here's how we're going to miss all of it. Here's how we miss all of it. God's wrath was fully poured out for our sins on Christ, on our behalf. 
so that we could be saved, so that we could be rescued from the bondage and the wages of our sin. Again, in the text, in their struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, Paul here is, is, is assuring his readers, and of course us still today, that God's purpose for them as the children of God was to receive salvation. Not wrath, but salvation. I don't know about you, but we were talking about before in our, before our, our praise team practice, and we were just talking about the attributes of God that really stand out, and we were talking about forgiveness or long-suffering or grace and, and different stuff like that, and we can sometimes get a really good view of our own selves, right? We can think that we're doing a whole lot better than we actually are in light of God's holiness. And we see how many times we trip and mess up and, and fail on a, on a regular basis. The fact that God says, you know what? You will not experience not even one moment of wrath is again a mir miracle of God's divine grace. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His life for mine. Romans 6, 23, very familiar. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Peter chapter 21, for you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, to suffer. Who committed no sin, this was Jesus, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself, here it is, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins, I love this, once, one time he did it, for all. The just for the unjust. That's us. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It's miraculous divine grace. And it's beautiful. We escape the wrath of God because Jesus took it in our place. We'll not have to experience one second, not one moment, not one year. Out of all the gazillions, there's no time in eternity. <laughs> Out of all of what we would consider time, we will not have to experience not a fraction of God's wrath because Jesus took it all, just like I said, once for all. Isaiah 53, who has believed our message, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And yet we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. 
And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. This is what we read in 1 Peter. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Remember the verse, who for the joy that was set before him? By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 wraps all of that up. And it says this. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him this is the beauty this is the beauty of divine grace nobody in here earned it nobody in here deserved it nobody can can gain it keep it nothing it's all a work of God and it's all by his grace which again is miraculous, that we will not ever have to experience wrath. We'll never have to experience the torture and the torment if we are truly his. But what does that mean exactly? I don't know if I'll get to point two this morning because this point is so vital. This right here, what what is, he made him to be sin who knew no sin for us. How could Christ, please hear this, how could Christ Sinless Christ, be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How can a sinless God become sin for sinners so that they would become righteousness, his righteousness, in Christ? This is the doctrine of imputation. This is the doctrine of substitution. It's also called substitutionary atonement, substitutionary death of Christ. But this is the truth behind the point. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, became sin for us. But what does that mean? What does it mean that the sinless Son of God became sin for us so that sinners could be righteous in Him. God the Father, again, using the principle of imputation, which is a, um, a, an accounting term 
like depositing into a bank account, treated Christ as if he were a sinner, even though he was not. I don't know if if that strikes you like it struck me and strikes me. God treated his own son like the vilest of sinners, though he never sinned once. And he had him die. Remember Isaiah 53? It pleased the Lord because it was the divine satisfaction of the debt that mankind owed. He had him die as a substitute and pay the penalty for sins for those who would believe on him. On the cross, Jesus did not become a sinner, even though some people teach that. Jesus never once sinned, the Bible says, yet without sin. He did not become a sinner on the cross, but he remained as holy as ever. But he was treated as if he were guilty of all the sins ever committed by all those who would ever believe, though he committed not one. That is mind-blowing. This this truth, this, this doctrine of imputation, again, think about it like this. The wrath of God, please hear this, the wrath of God was exhausted on him And the just requirement of God's law was met because of his death. If that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will if you're a child of God. The wrath of God was exhausted on our Lord Jesus Christ. The full measure of God's wrath poured out. 1 John chapter 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Another word of propitiation is the atonement. Another, another way is the divine satisfaction or fulfillment. He is the divine fulfillment of our sins. And not only, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 1 John 4, 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be that propitiation. For our sins to be the divine satisfaction the divine payment of our sins again at the cross jesus took upon himself our sin he paid the penalty of our sin he became our substitute of what we deserved and at the cross god's justice was satisfied and his love was fulfilled you know what jesus said it's finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It gives us hope for this life and beyond this life. How could anyone live without this hope? How could anyone live without the hope of eternity? How could anyone live with, with, without knowing that, that their sins have been forgiven and, and, and they have the righteous? How can anyone do this? 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we, of, we are of all men most to be pitied. But here's the purpose of verse 9 and 10, so that we may live together with him. This is what it means to obtain salvation, that we may live together with him. It's to lay hold of eternal life, and it's made possible with, because of our union with Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates 
his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. Philippians 3.9 says this, And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Again, that's exactly what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 said. Now we glory in the cross, Paul said in Galatians 6.14. Cross that affords us salvation, again, in God's grace. It's also a sobering reality found in this point. He said, what's the sobering reality? God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming quickly. It's coming soon. It's coming to the world and the unrighteous will will face the exhausted wrath of God on their sin because they did not accept Jesus as their sacrifice and substitute, as their Savior and their Lord. Therefore, they will be faced with the full measure of God's wrath on them forever. As in the days of Noah, remember the Lord's word? In verse 37 of Matthew 24, for the, son, for, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving a marriage. They were living their life just how they wanted to until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand what was going to happen. They didn't understand truly the wrath of God until the flood came and took them all away. So will the, the coming of the Son of Man be. And back in our text, it says this, Therefore encourage one another, in verse 11, and build up one another just as you also are doing. We'll go ahead and get this second point. We encourage and build each other up because of God's promises. Again, Paul's letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this section was to instruct them and encourage them concerning the day of the Lord. So in light of their persecution, which we've already talked about, the Thessalonians facing, in light of their tribulation, in light of their concerns about the day of the Lord and, and who's going to miss it and who's going to experience it, Paul gave them God's word to be prepared for the day of the Lord, for the return of Jesus Christ. And in this readiness, and in their life lived in faith and readiness, they were to build each other up and encouraging each other. So what does that look like, though? We talked about Jesus being sin for us, and we kind of explained that, we understand Again, he's the substitution, and and, and we get his righteousness because he died if we trust in him. What does it mean to build each other up and to encourage each other? You notice that Paul said you need to do this. This was intentional. This wasn't something that just happened passively or happened as 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 a byproduct of them just being together. I think that is part of what happens when we're together. But he was telling them to do this. Encourage. You be proactive in courage. You be proactive and build up one another to encourage means to invoke or to to comfort to 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 uh, to entreat or to pray and so that means regardless of the circumstances we're in regardless of how we feel we have a reason to encourage each other and build each other up so what's the reason reason i i'm i'm dealing with this i'm dealing with that now i'm facing this now my job is like that my health and my family and this and that and that and this How am I supposed to encourage and build up other people when I'm dealing with all of this? Because you have salvation in Christ alone. 
To build up someone else means to help someone become spiritually strong. Every member of the church has a responsibility to help the other members grow and become mature. Every member. He said build each other up. That means like a house builder. That's what the definition is. To edify. Another, another rendering is to embolden one another. Think of it like that. You, your job as a, as a church member, in light of the Lord's return, in light of the fact that you'll never face God's wrath, but you'll only experience his salvation as a child of God, no matter what you're going through, you are to encourage, lift other church members up and embolden them to be the, 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 the most fruitful child of God they can be. The question is, in, in light of the soon re return of Christ, in light of the difficulties that life brings us, that many are dealing with, if not everyone, in light of the tribulation and the persecution that might be ahead, the question is this, please hear me. What am I doing to encourage and build other church members up in the faith? Ask yourself that question. What am I doing to encourage other church members and embolden them, to build them up in the faith? Jesus is coming soon, and that's part of our task at hand, is to encourage each other and build each other. When's the last? This is a deliberate charge for them in light of Jesus' soon return. Here we are 2,000 years later. We should be a whole lot better at this than they were. We have 2,000 years of church history and examples to follow. The question has to be asked, are you doing this? Are we doing this? Are you being intentional and deliberate to encourage somebody else in this church? Are you being deliberate and intentional to see how can I embolden them? How can I build them up so that they are stronger in their faith? Is that where you are? Are you concerned about this? So not really. I just kind of show up and listen and then leave. So I think what Scripture tells us is that when we see our life like Jesus told us to see it, we think of others first. And I think that's where the church is missing it. Again, there's just, it's been going on for decades now, but this great consumer movement sweeping across the church where it's all about what I like and what I want and what I want to hear and what I want to see, what I want to experience and what I want to feel. When Jesus taught just the opposite, Jesus taught you need to be concerned about others. You need to serve others. You need to submit to others. You need to, to esteem others highly than yourself. You need to honor one another. You, matter of fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, I believe, it says that you are in honor. You are, you are to outdo one another in honor. You are, to, you are to esteem others and honor them. When we live our lives and see our lives like Jesus told us to live and see it, we're concerned about the example that we set. And we don't like to talk about that because we like to say things like this, well, they shouldn't be watching me anyways. Remember you said that earlier, they shouldn't be watching me. But the reality is, just because we aren't supposed to be following other people, we are setting an example for other people. There's no question about it. You're influencing somebody. People are watching. You say, I don't know who. It doesn't matter. 
Just know that people are watching. Maybe your kids, maybe somebody across the room, somebody you don't even know. People are watching. And the question we need to ask, because people are watching, and we are setting an example, that's just the reality, is does my example point others to a closer walk to Christ or not? When you came in here today, did you smile? Did you, did you encourage somebody? Did you say hi to someone? Did you shake somebody's hand? Did you hug somebody's neck? Did you do something to encourage or build them up? Or was it all about you? You came in here today, was it all about you? Or were you thinking about, how can I encourage someone else? Because I don't have all these flower words. That's not me. I don't, I'm not like that. I'm not. No, no, no. When you see your life like Jesus wants us to see our life, then you're concerned about your speech and your attitude. You're concerned about your interaction with others. Is my life helping others? Is my life building other people up? Jude chapter, Jude chapter, Jude 20 says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Our call is to build one another up, Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider. We need to think about, really seriously consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembly together, as the habit of some is, but here it is, a deliberate charge but encouraging one another. And look at this next statement. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of the Lord. I'm about done, but I, I think some people are too consumed with self. And I think some people are, are too consumed with protecting themselves from others. That they don't even give a thought to building someone else up. Well, if I, if I do that and someone tells me to go fly a kite, then I'm just going to get mad at them. Why? Don't do it because you get what you want out of it. Do it because Jesus commanded it. And you did it to honor him. That's taken on the mind of Christ. That though he was without sin, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. That's the mind. But yeah, but I mean, if we're supposed to encourage one another, then who's going to encourage me if I'm doing all the encouraging? You just trust God and do what you're supposed to do. But we can't do that because we're too consumed with ourselves sometimes. We're so saturated with what we get out of the deal. You know what we got out of the deal? Salvation. Undeserved. We already talked about that. We deserve the wrath. We deserve the punishment. And we got salvation. And so we get to serve at his pleasure. We get to encourage other people. We, we, don't, we don't deserve it. We don't have all the goods ourselves. He gives us everything. And we have an opportunity to come in this place and encourage other people and build each other up. Not just come in and, and, and act like we're all about ourselves and just leave and go about our own lives. That's not the church. In light of the end, he said, encourage each other and build each other up. Intentionally do it. And there are two sides to building up. So maybe you came in here th this morning and said, you know what, that's me. I've been thinking about me, and I haven't been thinking about other people, and I, and, I, and I haven't been thinking about how I can encourage and build somebody else up. I don't do that at all. I'm, I'm all about me. I'm a selfish person. That's what it is. Man, if we could be that honest with God, I mean, I think that we could gain a lot of ground spiritually. But there is a flip side to that. You can also be so about you and so selfish and self-centered and only thinking about you that when someone does come along and shake your hand or hug your neck or smile at you, say good morning to you, 
you can be closed off and not receive the encouragement and the building up that's supposed to be happening in the church too. Both sides. One doing the building up, the other one receiving. Both must actively participate and not be self-centered. Both must strive to have the right mind and spirit. It's similar in a marriage, right? The, the husband better not do for the wife because the wife does for the husband and vice versa. You know what that is? That's conditional love. That's conditions. Well, I will do this if you do that. Well, I only do this because you do that. That, well, that doesn't work like that. For some people it does, but it only lasts a short amount of time. It's 100%, 100%. You do as a husband because that's your call as a husband, 100%. You do as a wife because that's your call as a wife from God, not because of what your husband does or doesn't do. And similarly, similarly in the church, you encourage because that's what the Lord told you to do, not because someone does it to you. You must focus on Christ. So I don't know, I'm just going through so much. Well, focus on Christ. That's the key. If you're going to make it through whatever struggle you're going through, focusing on Christ is going to enable you to be spiritually and help you mentally and emotionally to build up and also receive the building up. So what about it, Christian? Are you truly a Christian? Are you truly going to heaven? Are you conscious spiritually? that your life is supposed to be an example. You're to be building others up intentionally. Paul said, just as you are doing. It should be happening right now. You should be intentional in this church. Every single one of us. Not just the pastor or leaders. Every member should be intentional. Is that your reality? Or should today be a day you say, you know what, I need to start doing that. I, I come in this place and all I think about is me and my family. When's the last time you intentionally went to someone, hear me, new? That you typically don't, you say, I encourage somebody, I encourage people. No, no, no. Not the people that you typically go to after services are over. Somebody new that you don't typically talk to, that you don't typically shake their hand or hug their neck? When's the last time you were intentional to encourage somebody else new? Again, it's not about being social. You say, I, just, I can't do that. I'm not an extrovert. It's not about being an extrovert. You know what it's about? Being a Christian. That's what it's about. It's about being a part of the body of Christ. So let's be that. Let's be the body of Christ. And if you're here today and you're not positive, 100% that your life has surrendered to Christ, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you're a child of God, and he's going to tell you one day, welcome into the joy of your Lord. If you're not positive about that, I'm begging you to come down to this altar. You can go into the back. There's, there's somebody at the back. There's people at the back. You can go back there. I, I, need, I need to talk to someone. I need to make sure that I'm saved. I need to make sure I'm going to heaven. I don't want to have any doubts. Please do that today before you leave. You heard what Jesus did for you in your place.
Don't chance it, and I hope so. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for what you do in our life, Lord. We thank you for the beautiful, miraculous grace that you've extended to us. Lord, the fact that you took our punishment, you took our place, is, again, a miracle. And we thank you for it. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for that being our appointment and not wrath if we're your child. Lord, help us to move today. And I know that it's so easy to become self-centered. It's so easy to be focused on us. But help us truly be the church, focusing on you and focusing on others. And if we do that, just like in a marriage, everybody gets taken care of. So Lord, we pray that you'll You'll help us to, to do that. Lord, help us encourage. Be deliberate to encourage others. Be deliberate to build others up. And we'll praise you for what you do. Lord, help us now respond rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll stand as he sings, I want to invite you to come.